Hey, you're listening to Dan Pilled 5. I'm here with uh, Jesse Hawkins, who I've done the previous four uh, installments of Dan Pilled. Jesse, hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's do it again. <laughs> and we're doing it again, but we have a third mic this time. Uh, our guest is Carrie Corgan. Carrie, uh, say hello and uh, tell the people who you are and what you do. Hi. No, thank you for having me. Um, I am a writer. I'm working on a book about Elaine May. Um, and I'm also a music journalist on the side, and I do video for Pitchfork. Just keep saying and, and, and. Um, well, that just means you're like a polymath. <laughs> Well, yes. Uh, Carrie, what's your history with Steely Dan? Like, how long have you been uh, in the Dan fold? Um, so I definitely had some familiarity with, like, the top-level hits. Um, probably since, like, late high school, early college. But I, I would say definitely, like, getting kind of in the, the wormhole of the Steely Dan universe has been more of, like, the past, like, three or four years. I would say is when I really started to be like, oh, this band fucks. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's generally around the point where like something happens cosmically where just a lot of people's third eye for Steely Dan opens kind of simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's like, I think there was something about seeing so many of my peers talking about Steely Dan that I was like, okay, I really have to. And I, I'm somebody who can't just like, listen casually to something when I want to get into a new band or whatever I'm like okay I'm gonna go in and I'm going to listen to Steely Dan's entire discography and I'm going to like go from zero to 100 with it so okay so one of the things uh, we want to talk about at the top of the show is uh, both Carrie and I separately saw uh, Steely Dan pretty recently Jesse unfortunately has not Trapped here in Canada. Yeah. And but the, but the they timing didn't work out. Matthew and I were talking about me coming down to New York for the Jones Beach show, but it, my schedule didn't accommodate it. My fervent prayer is that they're going to do their Beacon residency in November, in which case you will absolutely see me there. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it would be also nice if they just went up to Toronto, which they do occasionally, I guess. They've been here. The last couple of times, though, they were at a casino about an hour outside of Toronto. But... Uh, Here's hoping. There's been no news about a summer show, but we do have the big venues downtown for them. Yeah, the, the show that I saw was at Jones Beach. Like the vast majority of the shows I've seen them play were all at the Beacon Theater. I saw one uh, arena show in Los Angeles. So this is uh, one of the outlier shows. And just seeing them in Jones Beach, which is kind of like a bit out into Long Island, the extremely Long Island energy. Uh, this, the people at the shows were, were pretty different. It was definitely, I, I don't know how familiar either of you are with just like the depths of Long Island and just the attitude of a Long Island person, but it was very much there. Uh, the, the attitude of uh, spoken or unspoken. You think you're better than me? <laughs> uh, but I, I went there with um, Long Island's favorite son, Sean T. Collins. And uh, it was great. Uh, and one of the things that Sean and I really kind of came away noticing is how fun it was to just see a, a lot of people who probably had not seen Steely Dan before just react to the drummer, uh, Keith Carlock. 
And I think we had seen Keith Carlock play enough times that we just kind of took it for granted. But seeing people have that kind of like kid on YouTube uh, freaks out listening to Phil Collins uh, thing going on was really cool. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people at the show I went to had that same sort of reaction, which I was a little bit like, it's, have you guys never seen a, a drummer before? <laughs> I mean, he's a really hot drummer. But... He's a hot drummer. I. This is maybe a controversial opinion. There came to be a point where I was like, it's just an extended guitar, or an, it's an extended drum solo that is like a little bit egregious at this point, and everyone is still clapping and freaking out for him. Like, okay, you guys, we get it. Yeah. So, what would that be like? I mean, there's that they they really extended home at last on this, uh, almost to a point where I was like, well, is this still going? Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think like he really gets that on uh, on reeling in the years. But you know, that's like a, a grand finale song. So if you're gonna do like some really over the top drum soloing, that's a good place to put it. I think. If yeah, if you're if you're like sending everyone off into the night with a a super long drum solo, that I can be more forgiving of. Who do you like playing a drum solo? Because I feel like, generally speaking, I, I'm not a big drum solo fan. I am not a big drum solo fan either. I think most of the time they strike me as sort of narcissistic. Like, there's a little bit of, like, self-satisfaction in it. And I can't, like, technically that that line of thinking should, if I ha if I think that about drum solos, like, Technically, I should just like apply that to any kind of instrument solo. It's just like kind of like full of yourself and pompous and like show offy. But it's I don't know. It's different when it's I think it's different to me when it's like a guitar solo or a bass solo. Where I'm like you're contributing melodically to this song. I don't know if there's any drum solo or any drummer that i have enjoyed an extended guitar like drum solo from yeah i thought i mean even keith carlock is not doing anything for more than like a minute and a half two minutes um but i think about every once in a while i'll think about led zeppelin right and like how cool it would be to see led zeppelin but then you have to factor in that virtually all of the shows has a 20 to 30 minute drum solo <laughs> which is just an unbearable thing to think about even if it's john bonham it's just like that's just way too long like every you know the the band can go hang out but like everybody else is kind of has to stand around yeah at a certain point you're like i don't know what to do with this yeah oh god i remember seeing um uh, fleetwood mac uh i don't know how long ago it was now uh Certainly not the last tour, because I would not go see it without Lindsey Buckingham. But uh, I remember saying, like, Mick Fleetwood, you know, does a lot of those solos, too. But I was at, like, this, I think I was at the Prudential Center when I saw this. Um, but I was at this just this weird angle that I could kind of see behind the stage a bit. And I could see that there is, like, a, a second hidden drummer that's playing along with Mick. Which is, great. Yeah. But, you know, this is kind of seeing like Mick, you know, who's pretty old at this point, uh, just feel his way around the thing while this other guy is like going buck wild. He's probably like 29. Incredible. I feel like, yeah, that's the thing. Like Mick Fleetwoods are kind of fun because he does that 
like there's the one I think it's in like world turning where he comes out from behind the drum kit then and he's like playing bongos or something and he's just like a madman and it's like there's some sort of like court jesteriness to it yeah he has a good charisma too yeah I'm like otherwise I'm like you gotta you gotta give me something here like I think it's also a thing where the band sort of owes him that gratuitous spotlight because his name is in the name of the band. <laughs> yes. You know. Sure. Ultimately, he's the dad of the band and he must have his dad time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you guys. What was the crowd like at the show? Was it people of all ages? Was it skewing older? Carrie, you go first. So... I went to see, I've never seen them in New York. Um, I went to see them with my parents um, at Wolf Trap in in Virginia. We are not even from Virginia, but I guess it's like a reasonable drive from where my parents are. But uh, it was extreme suburban energy. And it was like, I would say 75% like boomers. Like there was a point where I lost my dad in the audience and I was like oh this is not a good place to lose like a gray-haired boomer it's it's like real (laughs) needle in the haystack here like I'm looking around and there are a bunch of people that could be my dad just from the backs of their heads alone um real like mom and dad's night out kind of energy interesting um yeah yeah so relative to the uh Beacon Theater shows which I think you know, have a real like uh, uh, too much tuna energy to them. You know, it's like uh, why am I forgetting the name of those characters? Like uh, Gil Faison and uh, George Saint Beeglin. It's like it's like a whole lot of those guys. Um, but then I think there's always a, a fair number of younger people, and you can have a fair guess that a lot of those younger people are musicians in some way. Usually, like. Uh, you know, real musos. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I usually find at Beacon Theater uh, in Long Island. Again, it's a, a powerful Long Island energy, mostly boomers. But there was a, a, a good contingent of people who were under 40, I think. Um, and most of those people were, you know, still in that category of like they're probably musicians in some way. But uh a lot of you could always tell like the the younger people because they were generally wearing the bootleg Steely Dan merch that's become a whole part of this. Um, a lot of people wearing Double Wonderful gear in particular, and uh, the Double Wonderful guy actually was at that show. But I don't I don't think he was actually selling stuff. But I just but I just uh, know from uh, him posting about it. But yeah, so it, it, there is that whole contingent of people who are just kind of the younger people who are maybe coming into this with, you know, some degree of irony, at least in the terms of like, you know, gravitating towards the, uh, the largely ironic merch. I've been enjoying looking at Twitter while Steely Dan's on their tour and seeing, uh, the reactions of people who were shocked at just how tight and great the band was. I think they were expecting to see an oldie show and, and heard very contemporary music. That is funny because you think about Steely Dan and it's like, what would make you think that that Donald Fagan would half-ass any of this? Yeah. Like, this guy is, like, notorious yeah. for, like, putting, like, session players through the paces. You know, it's a high degree of uh, 
competency up there. It's also a lot of the, 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 the majority of that band has been in that band for a long time at this point. There's only a few uh, seats that kind of switch around. Like the, the lead guitar role has moved around a little bit uh, since Walter died. Are they doing covers on this tour? Um, not really. I mean, they, they do the covers. Like they, they always like open with a uh, jazz instrumental. And then there's, there's technically a cover, I guess, when they do the... Uh, the intro section they do the crusader uh, sorry, they do the crusaders keep that same old feeling which is a song i've become very obsessed with uh, in, in between the, the the last time i saw them and the most recent time i saw them so in, in this show i was one of the things i was most excited about was actually keep that same old feeling play uh, another jazz thing at the outro uh, it's still uh, a man uh, ain't supposed to cry which is also on the live record um which they kind of throw to after uh donald's like uh i want to want to dedicate this to my partner walter you know and his moment of uh sentiment at the very end yeah carrie what, what were the highlights of the show for you um, I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of it was like, a lot of it was observing the audience. I think I would have had a different experience and a different vibe if I wasn't there with my parents. And I was like, because I think when you, especially when you go to concerts with other people that like you don't normally go to shows with, part of my experience, like part of my concert experience in this situation was a lot of like continuing to like look over at them. Are they having a good time? Are they enjoying this? I'm enjoying this. Like, and then just people watching, like watching all these old people like give a standing ovation after every single song <laughs> yeah. or like clapping off beat. Um, but like in terms of music, um, I mean, it's hard to say. I think I think I'd have to say like the way because again I've never seen them live before. Um, but the way that they have the backup singers do dirty work in a way that feels more like it's um in the style of the uh oh my god what the had it on the tip of my tongue um uh 
in a way that seemed more like indebted to the Pointer Sisters cover of it. I was like, that's cool. That's a cool move to like play the song that way live instead of like singing it yourself. Times are hard. You're afraid to pay the fee. So you find yourself somebody who can do the job for free. When you need a big And then, I don't know, I love Ricky Don't Lose That Number, so seeing them play that, I was like, hell yeah. You got lucky, because that's like one of the, the wild card songs. Yeah. Like, my wild card song was Any Major Dude. Oh. I would have lost it. Yeah, I really felt for that's you. I, I thought of you in that moment, because I, I now associate <laughs> the song with you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, th- I think in some ways you kind of broke that song open for me because I've always really liked that one, but I think uh, I hadn't given as much thought to uh, like what it's actually about, like the, the lyrical perspective on that one. Mm-hmm. A good song for her to play in June, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm trying to think, what was the big highlight for me? I mean, um, I mean, any show where they play Time Out of Mind, that's going to be my favorite part of the show, you know? I love Time Out of Mind so, so much. I mean, I really got into Babylon Sisters in this show, um, which they, they hadn't been playing that much for a little while, but uh, has been kind of a, a regular staple of the 2022 uh, touring. It's a lot of T's I just had to hit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that song, it almost feels weird to hear that song and it's not in Los Angeles. That song is just so incredibly Los Angeles to me. Did you did you guys both get uh, Deacon Blues at your shows? No, they haven't been playing that. They, oh. they usually only play Deacon Blues in Asia shows for the most Sad. part. I it's, It is weird, though, that they're withholding with Deacon Blues because it is one of their biggest hits and... Uh, I mean, just actually, I did a project recently where I realized, uh, I, I didn't actually know this, that it really was like a very consistent top 20 hit through 1978. It, I mean, it was a major, major chart hit in a way that I didn't realize. I, I mean, it actually kind of outdid Peg in a lot of ways, which I figured was probably, I mean, I remember, I mean, I know I've heard Peg on the radio, but I don't believe I've ever heard Deacon Blues. But I think, you know, we're talking about the late 70s, and I think a, a seven-minute song is exactly what a, a DJ wants so they can get a good smoke break in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, I feel like that's, that's something we've lost in our culture uh, as a result of automating all of the DJing. <laughs> I had said on a previous show that our jazz station in Toronto has been introducing more and more uh, Dan into their playlist and uh uh last week i was just puttering around at home and then all of a sudden babylon sisters came on and i was like oh beautiful like that's i don't think they've played that song very often on the station but like 
I just, uh, I, I think, I don't know whether it's a aging boomer thing where jazz stations are starting to like finally admit that Steely Dan has sort of a jazz band and it's okay to play Steely Dan on a jazz station now or something. I don't know whether uh, the jazz station would have played Steely Dan in the 70s or in the 80s, but by now they can. Carrie, relative, so I, I know that you see a lot of shows that are basically like boomer artists. What was the, <laughs> was there a discernible difference to these boomers versus the other boomers audiences that you've witnessed? Um, I think it was just like this, the extreme suburban energy of it all, because like most of those shows that I, I go to are like in New York. Um, they're like, they're more like too much tuna boomers. It's, there's some sort of like, yeah, New York City people are just different. They just really are. They're just different. <laughs> Especially if you've lived there they're a really, really long time, which is, I think, definitely a lot of the people who be coming to these things. Yeah, and it's like, I think the biggest difference is like, I, I've noticed that any anytime I go to like a more suburban area to a show that has like more of a boomer crowd, they're like overly enthusiastic and they stand up at weird moments in the songs and they like dance along or they clap off beat. And people in New York are like older people in New York are just like thoroughly unimpressed in a way where it's like. It's a lot of people kind of like very like firmly you. grasping their dignity. Yeah. A little like jealously like guarding their dignity. They are like hard asses. They're the people who will like be pissy with you if you stand up. And it's like, this is a rock show. What the fuck? Like stand the fuck oh, up. Oh, I took my mom to see um, Billy Joel at the garden a while back. And we were, the people around us were very much like that. Like just yelling at people to, to stop standing up or something. Then yeah. It's the garden. Yeah. Like it's a rock show at the garden. People did that to me all the time like on flat like Fleetwood Mac shows or Stevie Nicks shows especially where I'd be like how are you sitting down like this it's it's Madison Square Garden this is a rock concert stand up um I can see it at the like the beacon any kind of theater I'm like it's yes absolutely we're all like dignified adults here we're sitting down and we are clapping politely at the end of every song and we're maybe standing up and like losing our shit during the encore. Mm-hmm. That happens like, at least at this show, like that was the ener- the encore energy was present throughout the entire set. That, that sounds kind of cool though. I mean, the audience I was no, I with was it. definitely like not quite as hype. Um, but the the major suburban thing that I ran into at this show that I've never experienced before, even having seen other shows at Jones Beach was like the tailgating was out of control for Steely Dan. Um, oh, I'm sure. And it was like, uh, my friend brought me in, uh, we drove over from where he lives in uh, Long Island. And it was like impossible to park because it's not just the people were like tailgating, but they were t- taking up like all of the extra parking spaces because they were like that level of Long Island fuck you. Um, where like, no, because I think you're supposed to generally just kind of like, you know, be, you know, right out of your car, but no, 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 no. They were setting up tables and (laughs) like everyone was doing this elaborate, elaborate tailgating. Um, and it's just a lot of people where even if you had 
the thought of like, oh, I should actually be like, hey, do you mind? I, I need to park here. It just wouldn't be worth it. These people, you can't talk to them. You you will yeah. lose that confrontation no matter what. So. Yeah, um, no, I feel like, I don't know. I think. Was there tailgating was in just, Vienna? There was tailgating. There was tailgating there. I think we probably like we maybe missed most of it. Um, like you could see the evidence that it had happened, but mostly like everyone had started to make their way inside the venue by the time we got there. And part of that was like self-engineered by me where I was like, we don't have to get there right when doors open. We can miss that chaos and we will be fine. <laughs> you you might've um, felt differently if Amy Mann actually played these shows as originally I would have felt yeah 100% differently like that's that honestly is like the reason why my parents and I were gonna go to this like I I'd managed to turn my parents who are so so on Steely Man on Steely Dan had never really listened to Amy Mann and in the course of a long car drive back to New York after Christmas I turned them into like big enough Amy Mann fans that like they saw that she was touring with them and my mom texted me and she was like, oh, you know, this is a really pretty venue. But if it would be a fun thing to do this summer. I really like her music. Dad, dad likes her music too. What a fun combination. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. My power is too yeah, strong. You, you, you successfully man-pilled your parents. That's amazing. I man-pilled them. And then, of course, like she didn't actually... I don't know. She got booted from the door. <laughs> I don't, yeah, it's like every version of that story is just confusing. But I just really hope that they just have the sense to do like the you know to basically do it again later on. Um, well, and I think also it'd probably be better if they did because like she was basically. Uh, I mean, this tour was supposed to be with Steve Winwood. Like this was supposed to be in like in twenty twenty, but right. Yeah, so, but I think a, a show that's like advertised as uh, Dan and Man would go over pretty well and I think would make a lot of sense. It would. I mean, it's no secret that she loves Steely Dan. The cover that she started doing on her last couple of tours, or not last couple of tours, like her last couple of shows of Brooklyn is awesome. And I don't know, like, have you guys ever heard the Till Tuesday cover of um, of Dirty Work? No, no. Um, okay, wait. I'll have to. I'll have to send it. Yeah, to you, I'll drop like, it in here. Actually, you know for sure. If if she had if she had been on tour with Steely Dan and like put that in her set list, and I would have ceased to exist. I would have been like, this is the exact intersection of my interests. Oh God. I mean, the, the last time I saw them before this was the show where Jenny Lewis did dirty work with them. And that was incredible. Oh, like that's another exact intersection of my musical taste. Yeah. It, was, it seems like Amy Mann is especially big on can't buy a thrill. Yes. Well, I, I, yeah, I saw on YouTube, uh, her performing, um, Brooklyn, and doing a long preamble before the song where she basically explained the situation from her perspective, why she was booted off the tour and uh, the anger that was out there from people who, you know, have always had a grudge against Steely Dan. And here's another example of their misogyny and their, uh, you know, like the boys club kind of mentality 
which she rejected. Uh, I mean, she loves them. And uh, she says that that may be uh, a way of describing their fan base and their heyday, but not anymore. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, I agree with that. And I think, I think there's a little bit of, I totally get why people are like, that's fucked up, Donald, to be like, I don't think a female singer songwriter would drive with our audience. It's a little bit like, okay, my dude, like get with the times. Um, but I definitely think that I've, I've noticed at least like my perspective on Steely Dan has definitely shifted to like, yeah, when I was younger, I was kind of like, these guys are just, they're so misogynistic and they hate women. Like I don't, I'll listen to the hits, but like, oh my God, so many of these songs are just so disrespectful. And now I'm like, they're broken men. Yep. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I think also you get to um, two against nature and it's a whole record of just like creepy guys. And the, the whole joke is that they're creepy guys preying on girls in the most pathetic ways. I was like, okay, I, I think, I think I understand where you guys are coming from on this. I think I think I see whose side you're really on. Right. As they say, depiction does not mean um, as they say, depiction does not indicate endorsement. Yeah. I mean, the whole catalog is like is the catalog of sleazes. So it would be uh, weird if all of it was endorsement. So we have some songs that we picked out. Before we switch gears into that, I uh, just should mention uh, that a thing just dropped a few days ago, um, a recording of Steely Dan uh, doing Joni Mitchell's Carrie, uh, not to com- be confused with Carrie here, um, <laughs> uh, and that was meant to be on this tribute album. It was recorded in 2001. It, it didn't come out for a long time, like the actual tribute record that came out in 2007, but it, the song was not included, and I'm not really sure exactly how this leaked finally. But uh, it definitely sounds like a, a two against nature sort of Steely Dan. So uh, I, I think maybe in some ways that's a little disappointing. I'd rather hear like the the younger Steely Dan do this, I guess. But uh, I don't think, Carrie, you have not heard this, but I think Jesse has. I have. Um you know, it, it, it's yeah, I was I was really hoping that it was a contemporary thing like that Steely Dan loved Joni Mitchell in 1974 and did a version of Carrie with the uh, original unit. There don't seem to be too many uh, tapes like that lying around old Steely Dan sort of demos and covers and things. When I uh, smashed that play button, it was too against nature era Steely Dan. It was like, OK, fine. You know, it, it it's fine. It's a little certainly too dry. A, yeah, it's certainly not a patch on the original. But I did uh, think that it was kind of funny that Joni Mitchell's lyrics in the context of Steely Dan are pretty funny because 
uh, Steely Dan are always name checking the names of bars and types of drinks. <laughs> and uh, this song is about, you know, uh, Joni Mitchell rolling with her pal Carrie and ordering, you know, smashing the, the wine, the wine bottles and, you know, having a great time together out and about. And I, I appreciated it on that level because uh, it, it sort of sounded almost like Fagan had written the lyrics when I <laughs> listened to it. This oh. That just reminded me that my favorite bit of merch that they were actually selling, uh, I didn't get it, but there was this one t-shirt and also a mug, but it's the the logo for Anthony's Bar and Grill, which is from My Rival. It is just really funny to just have merch for My Rival, a song that they (laughs) they don't really play. It is, you know, probably the least popular song on that album. But so let's, let's move into the songs that we've chosen for today. Uh, let's start with Ricky Don't Lose That Number, uh, one of the, the biggest hits. This was a, a carry pick. I have a friend in town, he's heard your name. We can go out driving on slow hand roll. We could stay inside and play games out. talk a little bit about what Ricky is to you um see that that's where I think like I get back to my sort of like these men are absolutely deranged and I love them like isn't Ricky about like a real life experience oh yeah it's Um, it's about a a, a, the the woman uh the real Ricky is like a pretty successful writer and wasn't she but like wasn't she pregnant when like one one I can't remember who it was if it was Becker or Fager or Fagan that met her and it was like I, I can't remember I heard the story like years ago and it's always stuck with me where I'm just like I laugh every time I listen to it where I'm like oh I actually was, I just like, pulled it up uh I can read this thing to you um just to clear up a generation's worth of rumors about the lyrics of Ricky Walter Becker stated for the record in a 1985 interview in a musician 
that the number in question was not a slang for a marijuana cigarette. It was supposedly a way to safely blah, 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 blah. skip that part. Um, it's just Donald Fagan uh, basically had a crush on this woman, uh, Ricky uh, Ducournay, who's become a pretty successful writer. And yeah, I mean, it's really just like him, like meeting a girl at a party and being like really into her and just kind of shooting his shot. I think the song is basically as simple as that, but it, he kind of takes right. it to this metaphysical space. But like the story I heard was that, and but the detail was like, this woman was pregnant when he met her and he was still like, I've got a chance with her. Like if you get <laughs> tired of the guy you're with, come to me, like don't lose my, like there's something about that level of like weird self-confidence, I guess, that I'm like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's so goofy to me. And it's so, um, I don't know, it's so goofy lyrically in that sort of framing. And then just like music wise, it's it's one of those songs where you're like, this is, this is a banger. It absolutely makes sense that this is like one of their big songs. It's like, it's impossible not to sing along to it. It's impossible not to have a good time or be in a, it's impossible to be in a bad mood when you're listening to it. It's like, you put that on, it's going to lift the mood of the entire party. Yeah. It's a, it's a good vibe. Um, I, I think, you know, it's like that weird mix of confidence, but also like confidence kind of can be inherently silly. And I think that's maybe like part of what's driving the song, you know, and also just like, the, you know, what is that move, but also a move of desperation, right? You know, a little bit of self-delusion that, hey, you know, when you're when you're tired of your guy, you know, after you're after you've had the baby, just uh, hit me up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you might know me from my rock band. <laughs> <laughs> it's like totally delusional and ridiculous. And I I don't know, I can't help but love it because of that. I can't remember where I read this, but like not long ago, I read uh, the Ricky herself talking about that song. Um, and I think she just kind of appreciated it in this kind of weird way of, uh, you know, like, oh, that's, that's cool that I, I left that much of an impression, basically. Like, thank you. Like, that's the thing. Like, if somebody wrote that kind of song about me, I'd be like, <sighs> I in any other situation, I would be like, this is incredibly weird. This is chaotic. I should probably get a restraining order or something in this situation. I'd be like, um, I guess, thank you. I guess I'm complimented. Um, can you imagine being Ricky's kid? <laughs> like, the, like, knowing that, oh, cool. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's chaotic to me. It's. It's very early to mid seventies. It's mm-hmm. extremely early. It's like that's the thing. That's the thing that I latch onto. It's like a time machine in a song where it's like, okay, cool. That's the vibe where it's like not a big deal at all to hit on a pregnant woman. <laughs> and also to just be like, hey man, when uh, when uh, you're when this guy uh, you know gives up on you, just say hey, you know. Yeah, there is that weird energy to like these kind of social interactions in the 70s that uh, it, it this feels sort of alien from the perspective of now. 
um, it's not like people wouldn't do this. It's just like, I think every bit of how people would frame it in their heads would just be totally different. Yeah. I think people had, um, I think in the seventies there was probably a more go with the flow sort of energy where it was, um, I don't want to say it was like people were disrespectful of boundaries, but people didn't think that boundaries were like solid lines. Like everything was a dotted line. Everything was like, well, this is, this isn't like a, like a marriage isn't a binding contract or like, it's, it's okay if I cross this line because it's a dotted line. And now I think people would probably be like, I don't know if this is acceptable behavior. I probably makes her uncomfortable and I have to consider that and put other people's needs before my own and my own thoughts and feelings. Like, I guess is maybe the vibe. From a, a slightly different perspective that there was some ambiguity at the time, whether or not the song was about a man or a woman with the name Ricky. Uh, I mean, they made sure that we all understand that it's about a woman and that's probably the story. But I think that gay listeners also picked up on the ambiguity of this song and the non-judgmental thing about it. Um, you can interpret the lyrics uh, in a homosexual way. And the singer Tom Robinson in the UK did a cover version of this song where he made it explicit that it was about a man uh, trying to seduce another man. And the lyrics can be interpreted. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, lines like, uh, you tell yourself you're not my kind, but you don't even know your mind. And you could have a change of heart. Uh, that gay listeners would listen to the song and, uh, and, and the song was ambiguous enough that it was uh, identifiable. But this song is generous enough in the way that it's written that you can look at it from a male or female perspective, I think. And from either perspective, you don't even know your mind is... <laughs> A great, line. really terrible thing to say to someone, especially when you're trying to flirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's let's move. Let's stay in. I, mean, I I think we have no choice but to stay in the '70s, but a different kind of extreme '70s energy. Let's move to glamour profession. <laughs> favorite of both of you uh this is a carry pick as well we kind of let carry uh take the wheel a lot of this since we've already done several hours of dan pilled without her um so carrie what is glamour profession to you um glamour profession to me is like 100 
albums stopped being good when they stopped being made by people who were on mountains of coke like the coke <laughs> energy of this song is incredible I, like i love and even getting beyond this the, the lyrical content you would just get that that if it was just an instrumental yeah like a hundred percent and then you get into the lyrics and like i love a good story song and then i love like going into this song and being like i mean there's so many parts about it that i love but i just i love that everything about it i'm like this guy is just like doing rails of cocaine <laughs> yeah yeah it's like doing rails uh right after you you do a shewan a shewan dumpling shot that's the yeah. other thing like the way he pronounces words in this song is so weird it's like to fit the rhythm and it's like okay like like bogota and like sure and like I can't even say Szechuan the same way that he's like Szechuan. It's like, yeah. what are you doing? It's almost like sensual, <laughs> sensual, sensual dumplings. dumplings. It's just like extreme LA energy, extreme cocaine energy. Um, and it's like, yeah, every time I listen, I feel like this is a song you can't listen to and fully appreciate unless it's like a Saturday night and you're like about to go out and you're not doing cocaine, but it gives you the cocaine energy. Yeah. Like, vicarious cocaine. Yeah, it's like vicariously doing cocaine. With like none of the Yeah, I, I think this, I mean, I think this like Babylon Sisters also gives me a vicarious Los Angeles energy of just like, well, I'm not there, but if you put this on, it really does kind of put you really in a specific Los Angeles vibe. I think, even just getting into like a, a 70s LA vibe, which we all know from movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, it, I, yeah, I love the, the, just the names of things in this as well. It's like this Hoops McCann is a great name. Uh, Jive Miguel. <laughs> That's a great name. That's, someone should just take that as a band name. In 1980, when this song was written, we'll take some calls from my car was uh, the height of being very, very wealthy. Like this was technology that was not commonplace to have a phone in your car in 1980. Um, that gives you an idea. Really living the American gigolo yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, it's total American gigolo. It's total uh, six figures. I mean, like this is a coked out world. And if you want to keep playing in the coked out world, you better have a lot of money. You have to spend a quarter just to shine the silver bowl. I made a, I made a tweet a while ago. I said, local boys would literally like to spend a quarter just to shine the silver bowl and then to go to therapy. <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, we all just want that illegal fun under the sun. Yeah. Carrie, this is my favorite Steely Dan song. I agree with you. I love this song so much. It only gets better with time, too. It really does. It's funny because it's, it's the only disco song they have. If only they had made it at least a couple more. I Seriously. I mean, there's something also about it that's like, it's big summer energy. Just like the endless night energy of it all makes me think it's like a summer, a summer bop. Anything like disco and like this night just goes on and on forever. I'm like, put it on a summer playlist. All right. Let's, you know, let's bring it back to uh, the other side of the country. Let's do Brooklyn. Brooklyn owes the charmer under me. Okay, so vases, done up blues for dealing. A piece of island cooling in the sea. 
can't buy a thrill. Um, I kind of love that it's, I know that they were kind of like, oh, we made this album that was a little bit sort of, that had songs that were kind of like classic cow rock FM friendly tracks. And we were going to like sneak our way into the album by album or like song by song into our like weirder shit. Um, but I love, again, like I love a story song and I love this like depiction of an absolute jerk who <laughs> who just like is their neighbor. It's like, who who doesn't want to write a dis a diss track about their neighbor and how much their neighbor fucking sucks? The uh, the specific location of this used was uh, right by where I lived up until just recently. It's on President Street and Park Slope, between Eighth and Ninth Avenues, uh, which you know would be an incredibly expensive place to live now, but you know in the it's probably this somewhere in the sixties. Uh, it was kind of a, a a terrible neighborhood at that moment in time, but I but I've walked by that a bunch of times, just kind of in passing. I was like, oh, there, that, that's the Steely Dan house. <laughs> Imagine having uh, Donald Fagan as your downstairs neighbor if you lived above him. Oh my god, that'd be awesome. Isn't part of it that the other guy had a snake? Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know the details. Yeah, I don't know where I'm remembering this from. But yeah, some kind of exotic animal. I believe it's a snake. Well, you know, the wonderful little thing about Brooklyn and the recent Amy Mann imbroglio is that uh, when, you know, she was fairly forgiving about the fact that she got dropped from the tour. She loves Steely Dan and she loves Can't Buy a Thrill too, Carrie. Um, she said that uh, when it all happened, she wrote a little comic book that in sort of this comic diary that she was keeping where she basically called off the, the dogs. If people were mad at Steely Dan for this decision, she was like, I love Steely Dan. You know, I guess it is what it is, but you know, I love them. Um, and I'll always love them. She said, all is forgiven. If Donald just tells me what Brooklyn is about was a tweet that she wrote. <laughs> and Fagan wrote her an email, a very long email explaining the meaning of the song. Uh, I just very, want very them to kind. become really good yeah. friends. I, yeah, I like that they're that they're both like being very kind in this situation. But also, I, I it's kind of like I don't know. It was I guess it was kind of always obvious to me what Brooklyn was about. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm like I get it, but I I'm like not trying to <laughs> not trying to put Amy Man on blast here. But it's like it's obviously about a neighbor. Um, yeah. but I love that he sent, like, I love that he sent her an email, like, that just makes my heart very happy that he was, like, a good dude about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing personal. This is all the decisions of their management teams and the, you know, concert promoters and things like that. But the at the end of the day, these are two songwriters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to imagine he'd be pretty into her stuff, too. It's definitely, like, his kind of songwriting. Her version is lovely of of Brooklyn. Uh, in this video that I watched, she did a, a, I mean, did a long preamble where she explained the whole controversy and then launched into a very good version of this song. It sounded like a song that she could have conceivably written. It was so good. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it definitely it, suits her voice. It does, and I think songwriting wise, like it 
sounds like something. I mean, she has an an album called Charmer that is all about like narcissists, and I totally see, I totally see her writing a song like this, like about this kind of character who's a supreme asshole and all the weird shit that they do that makes them such a weirdo to live above and observe. Yeah. And a, a particular kind of New Yorker, that sort of entitled guy, you know, yeah. like he, uh, like the way that uh, she sort of summed it up is like, this is the kind of guy who just sits out on the stoop and complains constantly about what he's owed and all the things that he's done that he hasn't been rewarded for. <laughs> just like very, it is very New York energy. Let's stick with Campfire Thrill. Jesse had a, a pick, uh, Fire in the Hole. song that uh really got to me when i was little because i had parents that loved steely dan and listened to it i heard steely dan all the time in my 70s childhood and this was the song that really uh got its claws into me um i think it's a very very beautiful song and when i was young i was always trying to figure out what their songs were about and this was a song that i didn't uh, i knew it was about war but I didn't quite understand that it was probably about dodging the draft. That's the most straightforward read of the song. But as I've gotten older, I've started to wonder what it's, whether it's about just a lot more than that, whether or not it's a song about somebody who feels the pressure to conform or someone who's trapped in domesticity or somebody who hates their dumb job and is, uh, feeling trapped by their place in life. Uh, at one point, uh, he sings, my life is boiling over. It's happened once before, <laughs> which I thought was a very chilling idea. Like somebody just feeling this sort of um, rage uh, that they've been suppressing. But um, I think that the song is beautifully constructed and it has one of my very favorite piano solos in music. The, uh, the, between the second and the third uh, verse. Well, no, I guess not. There's not, it's not a verse structure. 
it's uh it's it's two stanzas um and i also in the early 70s uh was the period where the music of scott joplin and ragtime was starting to sort of return to prominence scott joplin was getting recognized again as a great composer at the same time that steely dan was making a name for themselves and i detected a a, a ragtime line in the piano uh in the piano work and I just was thinking, like, how many rock bands were composing ragtime in 1972? <laughs> it makes sense for Donald. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But just their their uh, just their unshakable dedication to past forms of music and and appreciations of you know people who aren't cool in a sort of countercultural way. So I felt that this song was sort of about somebody who uh, might think that even uh, being countercultural might be a form of conformity. Um, the line, a woman's voice reminds me to serve and not to speak. Am I myself or just another freak? Like in, in trying to be different, am I actually just like everybody else? This is a question that gets asked a lot in pop music. Are remembering this correctly that this is one of uh, Annie Clark, St. Vincent's favorites. Didn't you bring this up at some point? Yeah. Uh, in a recent interview with, with her, with uh, Raina Duras, uh, for NPR, uh, Raina, who uh, is a, a, a friend of mine who also has a sort of was very amused by our Dan Pilling project last year, actually asked St. Vincent about Steely Dan in the interview. And St. Vincent light, lighted up or Annie Clark lighted up and uh, talked about how much she loved Steely Dan and how influential they were on her music in general and on this new record. But then she uh, went off on how much she loves fire in the hole. But I also uh, did read quickly that I also read that um, Fagan and Becker both dodged the draft in the late sixties. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Let's uh, go. Let's keep it around the time that they would be dodging the draft. Let's go back to my old school. This is another Jesse choice. We've been talking around it a little bit, like we mentioned, um, you know, the G. Gordon Liddy reference in the lyrics. I can say from seeing the, the show recently, I, it occurred to me that it's kind of funny that the last two songs they play in the show are My Old School and A Reel in the Years, which is like, okay, you know, we did all these songs and now let's talk about college. <laughs> 
several of the songs that we're talking about in this episode are very autobiographical, actually. And my old school. Yeah, is- we really are going there with the, with the, the, the selections that we've uh, come up with uh, sort of arbitrarily. My old school is um, Donald and Walter settling a score from their days at Bard College. I mean, this is what they did on their second record, right? <laughs> like, let's go, uh, let's settle some scores at Bard where they were uh, unhappily surrounded by all the, you know, people that they resented. Uh, they, they, along with their girlfriends, were arrested in a 4 a.m. pot raid on a party at Bard that was orchestrated by the ambitious district attorney G. Gordon Liddy. And I read that Fagan and Becker, along with their friends and and their girlfriends, uh, let me say that again. I read that Fagan and Becker, along with their friends, had their long hair cut short by the cops in jail. And Fagan's girlfriend uh, found herself locked up with some sex workers in the jail. And she uh, apparently came from money and her father was very upset about what happened. Fagan and Becker made bail, but Fagan's girlfriend, whose name was Dorothy White, who painted the album cover for Countdown to Ecstasy, remained in jail until her father came to get her. And that explains the lyric, uh, it was still September when your daddy was quite surprised to find you with the working girls in the county jail. (laughs) So this is like very, very detailed. Uh, And, and, he also sings at the end, California will tumble into the sea. That's that'll be the day that I head back to Annandale. <laughs> it's like completely finished with that town. Um, it's a great song. And it's the song that they uh, finish the show most of the time with, isn't it? Or Yeah, or- it's, it's usually out of the end of the main set or sometimes they'll play it as the encore. These days, it's usually the the last song of the main set, and real one is the encore. There are a few Steely Dan songs that I'll listen to like three or four times in a row sometimes, and this is one of them. Oh, I mean, it's it's such a good banger, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I this also has like a sunny energy to it that a lot of the other songs don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's like a song that's full of resentment, it's it, it's kind of a good time vibe. It's a bit Chicagoy too, I think. Oh, like the band Chicago, yep. yeah. Yeah, certainly the, the use of horns in it leans more in their direction. There's a funny video on the internet of a, a Moscow band doing a cover of this song. And almost and so I was looking to see what other songs by Steely Dan they do, and almost their entire uh, lineup is all Chicago songs, actually. I mean... There are certain songs of theirs in their early work that I can kind of see how, and it's mostly the stuff that I think that like was on Can't Buy a Thrill that the radio people wanted or the label people were like, you have to have something more conventional in here. Mm -hmm. But in like their first two albums, I kind of see the like Chicago comparison. And I, but I'm also kind of like how much of it was them, how much of it was the label being like, we've got to do something here. Not on this song, though, but, like, in general. Yeah, well, when they did uh, Can't Buy a Thrill, they were under some pressure from ABC Records to put something commercial on it. Right, right. I guess they were like, Chicago influence it is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, God, of all the the successful bands of that time that they could reasonably emulate that probably had to be one of a very short list yeah um 
a thing I noticed the other day, um, that there was like this Yacht Rock review show that was at Pier 17 uh, here in New York City, which is, I haven't actually been to it, but it's a fairly large venue. Uh, but but this cover band uh, could headline a show there. And My Old School is their Steely Dan song in their set list. It's an interesting choice. Yeah. Not sure if I would go with that one if you're going for the like yacht rock angle. I would have gone for Peg. Yeah. But I think Peg I think Peg's probably harder to play. Yeah, there is that. I feel like my old school you kind of dumbed down a little bit. I mean not to like just imply that these musicians suck or something. I'm sure they're quite good. But you know what I'm saying? It's like I think some of the more yacht type songs they have are the more like Asia era, Asia gaucho stuff, which I think would probably be among the hardest stuff to play. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of a means to an end. Like I don't quite think that Steely Dan is exactly yacht rock, but the end justifies the means in the sense that it introduced the band to uh, another generation and, and removed all the sort of the cultural baggage of the way that previous generations thought of Steely Dan. But when I think of uh, Yacht Rock, I, I think more of Kenny Loggins and, and Michael Yeah, McDonald's. they play Heart to Heart by Kenny Loggins, <laughs> which is another weird choice. I mean, I can tell you some of the songs they're playing. Uh, they do She's Gone by uh, Hall & Oates, uh, Escape, the Pina Colada song, mm-hmm. uh, Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown, uh, Africa, Dancing Queen, Don't Bring Me Down by ELO, One of These Nights by the Eagles. What? This is kind of like a miscellaneous this kind of like cha- oldies. This is, yeah, the, there is no Yacht Rock through line. No. I mean, also, like, their choice of a Christopher Cross song is Ride Like the Wind. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, they, they are, Sailing like, was the, right there, guys. I know. They play Late in the Evening by Paul Simon. They do What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner. No, That's bizarre. No. Their Michael McDonald choice is really strange. I keep forgetting. Uh, they play, okay, Lido Shuffle by Boz Skaggs. That makes sense. They play Under Pressure by uh, no, Queen and no, Bowie. That doesn't make sense at all. Absolutely not. But they do end on Baker Street by uh, Jerry Rafferty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems that seems like a miss, like a like a bar band. Yeah, it's like bar rock. Um, yeah, I don't know. It seems to be a misunderstanding of the idea of uh, of that genre. But you know what? It's it's very successful. So maybe we're the ones who are wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where it's like the indie sleaze stuff, where it doesn't matter how much you try to root that in an actual history. People are like, no, no, it's absolutely Animal Collective. It's like, okay, fine. <laughs> You win. Like if you're gonna, you're 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 15 years younger than me, and you win. If you're gonna try dragging the yacht rock genre into like 1985, then go a couple more years and get Kokomo in there. You know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can envision it being successful because it's very much like play the most well-known song by most of these artists, and that's about it. But like, it seems like they're actually not doing that in a lot of cases. I mean, for some, like going with Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown is like, could I see it like verging on Yacht Rock? Maybe, like it's a stretch, but it's also like, oh, you chose the most like, like the weirdly radio pop hit in his catalog or like Dancing Queen by ABBA. Absolutely <laughs> not Yacht Rock, but it's like, that is the song. Like, there are some weird they, choices in that 
lineup for sure. They also do uh, "Let's Hear It for the Boy" by Denise no. Williams. No, no, no. no. It's Which just the fact that like people not. know that song. People are like, "Yeah, I love this song." Oh, remember when we were like, remember when we were young? Like, it's like a big remember when we were young, sort of. Yeah, like just but, call no, it. I totally think the audience 80s. for this is people just who are call, younger than me. Call it totally '80s and be done with it. You don't have to like yeah. call it yacht rock. Yeah. Uh, this is a sidebar on Let's Hear It for the Boy. That song was a big hit when I was, I think, probably four years old, maybe five. And my interpretation of that song was it was just like a song about how great little boys are. <laughs> like me, a little boy like me. Amazing. But it's a, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a, that's a better sentiment than the actual sentiment of the song, which is having the lowest possible bar for your boyfriend yeah. to clear it. Um, let's, let's, uh, stay with, uh, this record and do the Boston rag. Jesse's wanted you for a very long time. Yet another autobiographical song. Um, and this has to do with uh, one of the darkest sort of things about poor Walter Becker was um, he had a very rough childhood. I want to read you something that Fagan wrote in his statement upon the death of Walter Becker. Fagan said, Walter had a very rough childhood. I'll spare you the details. He was cynical about human nature, including his own, and hysterically funny. Like a lot of kids from fractured families, he had the knack of creative mimicry, reading people's hidden psychology and transforming what he saw into bubbly, incisive art. And this song is set in 1965, and and we can uh, presume that it's from the perspective of a teenaged Walter Becker, who grew up in Bayside, Queens, and Lonnie was the kingpin in the song, and he refers to Lady Bayside. And Lonnie swallowed all the pills and it was in a coma for two days. So I that's what the song is about. That's really what it's all about. But I detect this being a song about a young man in a drug-fueled crisis. That um, he was trapped in a, in a, in a rough situation where... Um, the narrator Lonnie and the narrator's girlfriend um, and Lady Bayside is Walter's reference apparently to ladies with attitude that came from Bayside in New York city. Uh, Walter Becker said that you could compare it to um, calling somebody lady Knightsbridge, you know, just like a, a woman, <laughs> like a, a, a sort of mean 
woman or a sort of a mean person being given sort of aristocracy, sarcastic aristocracy. And this is a quote from Walter Becker. He said, in, in, they asked him in Melody Maker in 1976 about the phrase Lady Bayside in the song. And he said, there's a community called Bayside where I culled numerous members from my first rock and roll band. And Bayside had a particular character to the community, which ranged from politically rabidly conservative to absolute congenital mind damage among its young citizens. <laughs> so the young women growing up in this community had a particular kind of character. So this is a very grim song, I think, about a real tragedy. Somebody's overdose due to their overzealousness with partying and being in a coma, basically. And the author turns to his girlfriend uh, for help, but, um, you know, she's of no use. Like, there, there's... It's a it's a desperate sort of situation that is conveyed in very few lines to me. Like it's not a very uh, verbose song, but you get this sort of idea of somebody in turmoil and and uh, somebody who's going to have to write this ship. And, yeah. and there's there's a certain dark drama to the the music there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty heavy. Uh, he says uh, they sing uh, any news was good news and the feeling was bad at home. I was out of my mind and you were on the phone, like. It's I don't know. It's it it just really paints a picture in a very very um with very limited words. And then I think that the the irony of the Boston rag that they refer to, I'll go back to how I mentioned earlier that um, there's sort of a minor ragtime influence on uh, Fire in the Hole. And in the ragtime tradition, there were all these songs that were named like the Maple Leaf Rag, the Pineapple Rag, the Magnetic Rag. And so this is the Boston rag. This is a grim story uh, that's being told in a, in a sort of a hearkening back to happier times, a longing for things to be okay. That's the, the emotional feeling that I got from this song. I love this song. And when I Dan pilled myself again in my thirties, this was one of the, the, the prime motivators, <laughs> the prime movers of my new interest in Steely Dan. I think the song is really, really something else. Okay, let's uh, move over to the Royal Scam and talk about green earrings. Uh, to me one of the highlights of the show that I saw just recently. Do they play green earrings at your show, Carrie? Um, I don't think. Like, I don't remember it being played. Uh, yeah, it's one of the variable songs. So Because I also know they cut our they definitely like cut ours short, I think, because there's like a curfew at the Wolf Trap. Like I remember looking at the set list and being like, huh, they skipped Oh, they did play it. 
But I don't remember. I don't like have any distinct memories of it. Yeah. What do you guys feel about green earrings? Because green earrings for me is one that took a while to fully click. Green earrings is to me uh, almost like a dry run for peg. Yeah, that was the I feeling that true. I always got from it. It's sort of it, it. It's a song that maybe started off as green earrings and turned into peg. It has the same the Chuck Rainey Bernard Purdy rhythm machine, as we could describe. It's it's a groove, really. I was thinking that. It seems extremely likely that it was kind of them being like, oh, let's try to write a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah. Yeah. Because this would have been like uh, written, you know, after Songs in the Key of Life is out. Um, so, you know, you're coming out of like the like the real classic era for Stevie Wonder and it's just kind of really in the air and there's just no way that they weren't into that guy. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I, th- I think kind of realizing that, so you know that like that major clavinet groove. I think any time you think of a clavinet groove, you know it has to come back to Stevie Wonder one way or another. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a song that really seems like uh, it really is built to be a showcase for the musicians. Yeah. I think especially uh, as you said, like Bernard Purdy on drums. So you just have like him just wilding out on it. Um, Denny Diaz and Elliot. Uh, Randall uh, play the Elliot solos Randall. on that one. Randall, sorry, God, I was looking at my my poor handwriting. I was like, God, that, that, that whole thing—that's what I wrote. Um, but yeah, yeah, but but but, and also there's a kind of that crazy flanger on the uh, the solo towards the end, yeah, which I, yeah. I think might be Randall. Um, yeah, it's just a song that really uh, grew on me over the time. But also, you know, there's the, the live version of it uh, and there's the live version of that's on the Alive in America live record um, has all the horns on it. And like they, they, they don't use the horns on the album version, um, though it kind of already feels like it kind of has horns on this like subliminal level, because I think there's also a good amount of uh, big band energy to that song. Mm-hmm. It also shares with the Fez on this record, that sort of minimalist approach. Like there's not a lot of words in green earrings compared right. to the other and, songs. But it, and it's very deliberate. It's just like setting up this kind of remorseless creep. Yeah. <laughs> this thief. Um, yeah. Who I think is like, kind of, it's kind of implied that he's like stealing from his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, the first uh, lines are cold, daring, <laughs> like, yeah but, but it makes sense though because it kind of like you know it's a song about a thief so yeah. he's like you know trying to be quiet it's just kind of uh kind of conveying a lot without uh too much and there's also kind of an, an action uh movie kind of quality to that song mm-hmm. you know once again the steely dan as cinema uh leitmotif oh yeah i mean you could absolutely reverse engineer a whole green earrings movie just from that song what they're giving you yeah, it's a good one. and I, But to me, it always reminded me a lot of um, the future, a little bit too, of the band. Like the, the, the stuff they were doing that they mastered by Peg is uh, you can hear a lot of it in things like Green Earrings and Fez. Yeah, and, and Royal Scam being kind of a pivot point to begin with. So, you know, you really have the songs in that record that kind of point in the direction of Asia.
Do we have anything more on green airings or should we move ahead? I'm good. Okay. So let's wrap it up with uh, Deacon Blues. One of the, one of the greatest, uh, I think uh, both Carrie and I independently were like, we have to do Deacon Blues. <laughs> um, Deacon Blues is one that I've, uh, in the recent past, have, it's really become like one of the, the, the core obsessions. And it was for a long time. I think actually the, the first time uh, Jesse and I talked about Deacon Blues, it was before that obsession really kicked in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I own two pieces pieces of uh bootleg merch that are deacon blues themed uh both uh very prominently uh displaying the line uh drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel (laughs) which to me is i think it's just one of the funniest lines in any song it is such an incredibly bold and crazy thing to say and just to make that the 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 hook of your song That's why I really want to see that one done live. Like, I just want to see all these, like, I want to see a bunch of boomers, like, singing enthusiastically along to that line. I just, it, in my head, it's so funny. God, there's so many funny lines in that song. I, oh, there's lines that kind of, kind of, like, stay in your head uh, without, like, you know, they'll just lose context. But you just, like, uh, learn to work the saxophone. I'll just play just what I feel. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful song. Um, I am always looking for any opportunity on Twitter to uh, make a drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel reference. Like I had a, you know, that meme with the guy driving and he's taking the the turn off the highway really fast. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have like, and so the direction will say uh, drink scotch whiskey and die behind the wheel. And then I'll write me underneath the car. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie, what, what is your feeling on Deacon Blues? I mean, I think the thing that attracted me to it so much at first was just like how funny that drink scotch whiskey all night long lyric was. And I kept like playing it over and over again. And then I kind of latched on to this song is just incredibly, I don't know if it's like, it's incredibly dark in a way that's like, oh, another song about a broken man and, like, a complete fucking loser who's like, I'm going to ditch my life in the suburbs and I'm going to become a saxophone star. I'm, like, all this, like, romanticizing, all, like, the romanticizing of becoming a musician, but it's, like, it's so sad, I guess. Yeah, it's a very pathetic character. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's just like a this sort of like grandiosity that he's imagining and you're like that's not going to happen, my dude. Yeah. 
in a, in a yeah. career full of songs about losers and epic losers, this is the biggest and most epic of them all, I think. Oh God. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like you think about like a, a lot of the song is like, you know, I'm going to do this, but then also saying I'm like, you know, also kind of pointing direction of what he's actually going to do. He's far more likely to, uh, to die behind the wheel than become a sax star. Didn't, um, didn't Fagan say something where he was like, yeah, no, he's like, absolutely not going to like if like this guy's absolutely not going to realize his dream. He's like not good at any of this. Like, didn't he say something like? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the point of the song is that, yeah, this is this is a, a guy who <laughs> the idea of the thing is is more important than the actual thing you know like being a musician is a thing that it's a trade it's a thing you you do all the time but he just wants to be the image of it mm-hmm. um you know i recently saw uh saint elmo's fire have, 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 have you ever seen that movie i saw it in 1985 but yeah do you remember um rob, rob lowe's, lowe's character, character is... rob lowe's character is deacon blues yeah. <laughs> now that you mention it yeah yeah, he, he learned to work the saxophone. So, you know, he's got that part down. And wasn't that directed by Joel Schumacher, who also brought yes, us the sexy sax guy from The Lost Boys, too? Yeah, Joel Schumacher has a type. <laughs> it's a wonderful sax solo, too. And, and uh, we mentioned it earlier, but like he got the guy who was in Doc Severinsen's band on Saturday Night Live to do the sax solo, and he did it in two takes. total professional but they wanted that sort of tv sax solo sound yeah because it makes it sound like there's a sentimentality to it yeah that kind of like a a little bit of a showbiz schmaltz which is part of this guy's fantasy about himself too man carrie help me out here what would today's young deacon blues be like like what would his ambition be would he want to be like uh, like a post Malone kind of character. Oh my god! Um, yeah, like somebody. I feel like a character who is like influencer adjacent. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, he's not even a musician. He just wants to be an influencer. <laughs> like, or a musician who is like a musician in air quotes, where it's like they're learn to work the Instagram, <laughs> like, um, all TikTok, whatever. Yeah. Oh my god! Drink Red Bull all night long. Drink <laughs> espresso oh, martinis all night long. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it would be somebody like um. What is his name? Like um. Like the the Paul brothers. No, no. Like, like I want to be uh, one of those guys. Oh my god. The... Call me Logan Paul. The rap that rapper who Jack Harlow. He'd be like Jack oh, Harlow, who is like technically yeah. a musician, but is like just pure vibes. Yeah. Like I could not tell you a single Jack Harlow song, but I know his yeah. vibe. Yeah. He's famous, but he's not really particularly talented. Like I think yeah. that's what young people increasingly disturbingly are aspiring to. Like they're not yeah. romanticizing the actual profession. They're like romanticizing the fame associated with it. Yeah, I mean, America has a long love affair with quirk, quirked up white boys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and uh, or from Elvis to Jack Harlow, famous for being famous, as I yeah. like to say. Oh God, influencer Deacon Blues. <laughs> Just <laughs> dark. Man, I hope we haven't like accidentally uh, wish something wish into, this the thing world. into the world just by saying it. Oh man! But yeah, yeah, I think a lot of the the dream of Deacon Blues, I think some of the poignancy is even in like 1977. It's it's a dated uh, kind of fantasy. I mean, this guy wants to be like Charlie Parker or something. It's also a very moving song. It's very uh, it's very emotional. Do you guys ever look at the, the Dan Vault on YouTube, that YouTube channel? No. No. It's really good. And like one of the, the tricks that guy likes to do is uh, take the raw tracks and oh, make yes. minimalist versions of various heard, songs. I have heard it then, yes. But there's one, um, there's there's two really good Deacon Blues on there. One is a Deacon Blues that is a live version that uh, Donald is playing somewhere I think probably in the late eighties as part of like a review. And that one is interesting because it has strings on it. So that that's an interesting touch, but there's also a version of the studio version that just brings it down to uh, drums, bass, vocal, and uh, sax. And it just completely changes the character of the song and really puts the emphasis on how good the bass is in that song. Mm -hmm. And I'd never really even like paid that much attention to the bass in that song. But I mean, and the bass in Silly Dan songs are generally very good, but it's just, this, there's a real lyrical quality to the bass in that song. You call me a fool, you say it's a crazy scheme. This one's for real, I already bought the dream. So useless to ask me why. Throw a kiss and say goodbye. I'll make it this time. I'm ready to cross that fine line. Learn to work the saxophone. I, I play just what I feel. Drink scotch whiskey all night long. And I behind. I think we can wrap it up here. I think we, we, we've kind of covered all the stuff that we set out to do. Um, Carrie, tell people how they can find you. Um, I am online on the internet, probably too much. I should probably log off. Um, my... <laughs> Carrie's a good follow. I recommend that. I mean, that's how I know Carrie. I'm just at my name on every platform. And Jesse, how can you find you? You can find you? me in two places. I am the guy who runs junk filter pod. Uh, and I am also available to harass at Jesse Hawken one word. And you, your account is mainly talking about how much you love the Marvel cinematic. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I've been doing handsprings this weekend because uh, I knew that, that 
Thor was going to be huge, and it was. So I feel personally vindicated by this. Yeah, everything is in its right place in the yeah. world as as Thor triumphs. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's got to be a good movie. It made $143 million. If it was a bad movie, it wouldn't have made that kind of money. Terrible buzz, though. <laughs> Terrible buzz. Yeah, I, I feel like the backlash is setting in because people loved Top Gun Maverick so much that I think it's sort of up the... It's raised the bar for being entertained in a movie theater. And so to go back to seeing this sort of cookie cutter MCU stuff, uh, it's probably vaguely disenchanting. I think one of the reasons I think you why you see a sea change too. Yeah. I mean, cause I think also um, I look at the minions and the success of the minions mm-hmm. as being also a reaction against Pixar mm-hmm. and a reaction against I think, marketing, like yeah. the success of, um, well, I mean, Minions is the apex of marketing. For sure. I see what but, you're saying. But I don't think that the gentleman Minions movement or whatever it's called was was the marketing department's idea. Oh, God. I feel and like that's Minions what I think is, is so like, great about it. That's the thing where I think Minions is like, uh, there is a weird subculture with Minions, like Minions moms on like in suburbia or whatever, which is like, yeah. that is peak like, brain worms your brain or like that's peak like your brain has turned off like mcu sort of yeah like mindless like consumption and then i think the thing that minions has that mcu doesn't is they have a huge and that contributes to this that and that contributes to its success is the fact that like yeah the stuff like gentle like gentle minions is like ironic consumption Mm mm-hmm no one's going yeah. to see a Marvel movie ironically. Or for the I, I think also Minions is yeah. it, it kind of stands against the uh, the fandom stuff that's become so central all this because no one really cares about Minions. They like Minions as this vehicle for expressing themselves. Or you know, you're watching like Minions, and it's like the humor I think is very kind of like a newspaper comic mm-hmm. strip energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and it also kind of like leans towards like, oh, these idiots, you know, it's just so different from anything that Disney and Pixar has been trying to put out, which they aim for this likability or, you know, we're, we're trying to make the world better through our content. Whereas Minions is just pure, just like, here's some trash. Yeah. Um, but I think, but yeah, I think if you kind of look at it, you know, maybe what we're seeing between like Top Gun and Minions, um, Oh, there's something else that was really everything big everywhere all was... at once too. Yeah, to me that really just feels very Marvel universe. Though, True, um, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, but I, I think there is this pull towards like an old-fashioned kind of entertainment. Uh, maybe, maybe not even entirely as a reaction against something, but so much as like wanting this other thing that's been kind of like not as present. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of the reasons why these things like Top Gun and Minions are doing so well and overperforming, that's the most important thing, is that um, people haven't been able to get out and do stuff for like two years. Uh, These are all uh, teenagers who were children, (laughs) more like children when this thing started. So um, this is a chance to sort of get out there and make your own sort of entertainment. Uh, And and Top Gun is, is striking chords with people because it's an actual... Uh, piece of cinema like beyond whatever its agenda is uh, it, 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 these things are striking chords and I think that the uh, entertainment on the installment plan uh, process of Marvel uh, is going to have to try and figure out 
how to change their wicked ways because uh, yeah. that formula may not work anymore in this post-pandemic universe now with Disney Plus available too. Yeah. Well, this is a taste of what you can get <laughs> on a Jesse's show. Yes. It's dropping movie knowledge, movie magic, movie knowledge. Carrie, I introduced a screening of Ishtar in Toronto. I thought you'd be happy to hear that. My, I am thrilled to hear that. I will cake for Ishtar any day. <laughs> glad, to, glad to know you are a fellow Ishtar fan. Yeah. I've never actually seen Ishtar. It's, I really it should. It is so good. It is so good. It's a, it is a trip. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way writing a book about Elaine May. <laughs> no, I, I love, uh, I love Ishtar. I will defend yeah. Ishtar until it kills me and it might. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, before we go, also we should mention, yeah, just, yeah keep, just keep an eye, just keep an eye on things. Carrie's book will be with us someday, years from now. I don't know. Where I don't think you. It seems like a sore topic mm -hmm. to be like where you are with it. No, but, I mean, they, you know, it's, it's coming. Just keep your eyes up there when the pre-order drops. Get on that. Yeah, fall twenty twenty-three. If we are, if every, if I don't know, if we still are allowed to like sell books. I'll buy it when when it goes on sale. That is a promise. Yeah, oh, yeah but only on sale in Canada. Yes, only only published in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you guys. Uh, yeah, and uh, eventually we'll do a Dan Pilled Six. What? And Dan Pilled Seven? Is that still on the table? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we just keep going, right? <laughs> thank you for having me back on again. Of course. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, guys.